0: Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 13 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. You know, after our little diversion into the world of Cohens, which, by the way, I plan to revisit periodically in these podcast episodes. But also, I'm thinking about as a part of a member patron offer. Um, I'm thinking about a dedicated Cohen Minute podcast series for brief podcast. I mean, Cohen Minute podcast series for brief Cohen examinations. Plus the you know, associated Cohen blog posts that would be involved in examining him even more closely. So, um, you know, if anybody's interested in that, let me know. I'd like to get some feedback, but uh, that's, that's, that's someplace my mind has been going. Um, but as I was saying, after our Cohen holiday, it's only right for me to move on to the Eightfold Path where we left off at the sixth part or right effort. And it's only appropriate that I'm recording this on Labor Day, although it may not be released until, uh, tomorrow. You know, the word labor is a synonym for effort and we're looking at right effort. You know, but like I talked about in the beginning of podcast, the beginning of the podcast episodes about Buddhism, um, I framed it as, as having a bad rap, right, for focusing on suffering, um, which as you've seen by now, if you've listened to these podcasts, it, it doesn't focus on suffering, but instead a focus on easing the discontent and dissatisfaction of everyday life. And sort of like that bad rap about suffering, I think the word effort has a strong connotation of seriousness, or maybe even sourness—a a sour practice or a sour life, you know—dedicated to this uh, mission. You know, it's 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 a sort of the it's the Protestant work ethic thing. And I'm going to take the sting out of this right effort Protestant work ethic connotation by referring to it as right effort, finding a joyful balance. You know, if you study the available teachings through books, articles, and talks on right effort, the first thing you're going to notice is that it's called a lot of different names. I decided on joyful balance because I think it expresses just the right intent for our everyday Buddhism approach. But you'll also see it referred to as diligence, which is, uh, you know, diligence, I think, still has that sour connotation to me. And in Stephen Batchelor's translation of The Way of the Bodhisattva, which he titled A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, he titled the chapter about effort, Enthusiasm, or Joyful Effort, or no, not joyful, Joyous Effort. So, as you can see, the sense of quote unquote effort as in quote unquote labor is not really the point. From our everyday perspective, it rests more heavily on the first and most important step of the Eightfold, eightfold Path or Right View. Since it's been a little while, let's review the Eightfold Path. Certain parts of it are talking about wisdom certain parts are ethics and the other parts are meditation but it is that right view that's the main support of everything else and remember it's not really a path as in you know first I do this then I move to the next step you know not a linear list like I said but a circle. By applying this circular, holistic structure to your life and considering it as a unified whole, you can transform yourself from someone who is discontent much of the time, most of the time, or even a little more than you would like of the time, to someone who frees themselves or liberates themselves from that dissatisfaction, to a more balanced state of equanimity and contentment. You know, the eight spokes of the wheel of the Eightfold Path, as a review, right view, number one, right intention, number two, right speech, number three, right action, number four, right livelihood, number five. Now we have covered all those in my podcast series. Now we're at number six, or right effort and then we will follow that at some point along the line with number seven right mindfulness and number eight right concentration those also have go under different names you'll find as you look at things um, on right mindfulness and right concentration but we'll cover that when we get to that actual podcast okay so the first two you know right view and right intention are grouped under the wisdom category the next three under ethics and these three are right speech right action and right livelihood and then the last three are grouped under the umbrella of meditation so we've now entered the meditation phase of the eightfold path so it starts with right effort and goes to right mindfulness and then right concentration so in this episode we're going to look into this meditation spoke of right effort and we're going to talk about it as as more of a natural thing rather than a a a push you know Um, it's a natural energy Let's think of it that way. Actually, it is taught in this way. Um, It's taught that energy or the word viria, V-I-R-I-Y-A, is the mental factor behind right effort. And it can be a positive energy or a negative energy producing wholesome or unwholesome forms of behavior. You know, the same energy in your life can either power desire, aggression, violence, and ambition, which is considered negative in this aspect, or generosity, self-discipline, kindness, concentration, and understanding. For energy to be a positive contributor to your practice or your desire to rid yourself of discontentment. You know, it needs the guidance of right view and right intention, like I said. The most basic traditional definition of right effort is this, is to exert oneself to develop wholesome qualities and remove unwholesome qualities. You know, in, as recorded in the Pali Canon, you know, the, the official historic known words of the Buddha that were were recorded, the Buddha taught that there were four aspects to right effort, and this is pretty common sense, really. You know, all you know, Buddhism gets all jumbled up, if you will, when you first start studying it with numbers and lists and things, and. You know, you think you got to memorize them. Um, and that's the kind of wrong effort to take, really. Um, I remember going through this, and I did. That is a wrong effort, you know, making lists, studying. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I think it really, for, for our purposes of everyday Buddhism, it takes away the common senseness of the whole thing. So listen to these four aspects of right effort and see how much sense they make, okay? The first one is the effort to prevent unwholesome qualities, especially greed, anger, and ignorance from arising. The second aspect is the effort to extinguish the unwholesome qualities, qualities that already have arisen the third is the effort to cultivate skillful or wholesome qualities like generosity loving kindness and wisdom which are the opposites of the origin of the greed anger and ignorance stated in the first aspect so your the effort in this is to to cultivate these good qualities that you don't really have yet that have not arisen And the fourth is the effort to strengthen the wholesome qualities that already arose. In other words, the qualities you already have, but maybe you could have more of. So what is this effort about, right? Let's boil it down to the secret sauce of our everyday Buddhism approach. This effort we're talking about is essentially noticing the bad things you tend to think or do, trying to do something about them, Noticing the good qualities you would like to adopt and trying to get them or strengthen them, right? So that's pretty common sense. But let's rephrase it in these four aspects once again in like a, 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 an everyday, what do I do about that sort of thing. So, number one, you're to notice areas in your life where you realize you are tempted to feel like, and sometimes maybe going along with the crowd or another person for just a minute or two in a outburst of greed or anger or ignorant thinking or behavior or a, a feeling of grasping at or feelings of fear or hatred. So number one is to notice areas in your life where you are tempted to do this two notice things about you that you do in your everyday life so things that you actually do think speak on a more frequent basis not just that you tend to that you actually do your particular afflictions this includes noticing when you tend to do them thinking about what triggers you to do them then trying to short circuit or lessen the intensity of the triggers so that you don't do them or you don't do them as much. You know, part of right effort is not trying to be perfect. So let's say, instead of saying, you know, short circuit or lessen the intensity of the trigger so you don't do them, let's say, try not to do them as much. Instead of thinking, I'm just not going to do it. And then when you do it, you get extremely disappointed or frustrated when you fail. So number three, noticing areas in your life where you could try to build better habits or practice around being more generous, more loving, more wise, more patient. These are the opposites of greed, anger, and ignorance. And number four, noticing where and when you do pretty good in some of these good qualities like generosity or loving kindness or patience or wisdom. And so you see, gee, I'm doing it here. Maybe I should do more of it over there. Or maybe I should pick up another good quality that I can add to my daily habits. So this effort practice, you know, this whole thing of right effort is really about trying to be less of a jerk and trying to be a better person. Remember the right intention episode I had on how to be less of a jerk? Well, that's important to effort. Because remember, this Eightfold Path is an integrated, holistic system. So central to effort is all the things before. And I believe right view and right intention are like the wind and the rudder to the forward movement of effort as our own personal spiritual practice or trying to be a better person. You know, right view is the wind. It will push you in the, in the correct direction. And right intention is the rudder, which will make smaller adjustments based on y- your intention, which was built on your original right view. Now, what about wrong effort? You know, we're talking about right effort here. What is wrong effort? Well, wrong effort is directing our energy into harmful, destructive trains of thought that distract us and make it difficult, if not impossible, to concentrate. Remember, these these rules came from sort of a teaching meditation approach. So, you know, concentration was the goal. But that's not all that foreign to what we want to accomplish here. You know, mindfulness has become the buzzword practice of, of today. Um, and mindfulness is built on concentration. So, you know, if you want to establish a mindfulness practice or if you just want to be more mindful in, in your day-to-day life without, you know, establishing a meditation practice during the day, then you need to find, you need to improve your your ability to concentrate, and some of these wrong efforts we're going to be talking about will impede your ability to concentrate or be more mindful day to day. You know, the sutra teachings present the things that could impede our concentration. They call them the five hindrances, and they are number one sensual desire, number two, ill will, number three, dullness and drowsiness, number four, restless, restlessness and worry, and number five, doubt. So now these first two hindrances, sensual desire and ill will, they're the strongest. They represent the the more powerful sense of greed and aversion at their core. You know, The other three hindrances are a little less toxic, but still they're obstacles to your concentration. So there's something to avoid and they're built on delusion. So all these hindrances are built on like two things at their core, you know, greed and aversion. Well, three three things, greed and aversion and delusion. So those are the biggies, right? Those are the biggies that, that mess us up, greed, aversion and delusion, Right. So sensual desire the one the first hindrance is frequently interpreted in two different ways okay first there's that narrow sense as you know what you probably thought lust but lust for the five strands of sense pleasures as they refer to it and these are like uh, things that you like things that you want to grab onto agreeable things you so you want you know pleasant sights pleasant sounds Pleasant smells, pleasant tastes, pleasant touches. But sometimes this sens- sensual desire of the first hindrance is taught more broadly to include any craving for sense pleasures, wealth, power, position, fame, or anything else that craving has a tendency to grip onto. Now, before you think I'm telling you to ignore or isolate yourself from somatic or bodily experiences, I'm not. It's not about not noticing or appreciating somatic experience as a wonderful part of your life. It's even part of the Vipassana practices to, to notice bodily sensations. But this is more about avoiding a grasping at them, wanting to keep them so that they become what your focus is on, what your primary thinking is. See, this obstacle is, for example, it's like trying to concentrate on something like our work, right? But our concentration gets distracted by thoughts like, hmm, I think I'll check Twitter, or I should look at that Facebook group, or I really need a pickle, or a piece of chocolate. And if you're like me, I sometimes have cravings for both those, pickle and chocolate at the same time and no I'm not pregnant. So what we're looking at here is sensory pleasures or desires like wanting to eat or wanting to be distracted by social media because we feel bored and so on. You know we need to put effort into not pursuing each one of those things when they pop up into our mind so that we can stay focused. Maybe a good practice is just try to get rid of Like avoid or sidetrack yourself from um, um, following the urge to get up and go to the kitchen and have something to eat because that was your distraction. Maybe you do need to get up and walk around from your desk a little bit, but if the primary sensory urge was to eat, maybe avoid that unless it is time for you to eat and you're hungry, right? The second hindrance, ill will, is a synonym for aversion, as I was talking about before. There was the base of, you know, greed and aversion and and uh, delusion. So aversion, it it is comprised of, the aversion or ill will is comprised of hatred, anger, resentment, any kind of repulsion, whether directed towards other people or even towards ourself. I see that a lot, people oh i'm so ugly oh i'm so this oh i'm so that that's a that's a that's a powerful hindrance to um right effort or re- repulsion towards objects or certain situations you know repulsion is 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 a grasping in and of itself because if we are repulsed by something we are grasping at not doing it okay so that interrupts our free-flowing sense of equanimity, or or the ability to concentrate on what's in front of us right now. Now, the third hindrance, dullness or drowsiness, is a compound of two factors linked together by a common feature of what they call mental unwieldliness. You know, one is dullness, which is like described as mental inertia, or The other is drowsiness, which is described as mental sinking or heaviness of mind or the excessive inclination to sleep. And the fourth hindrance is the opposite of this. Opposite is restlessness and worry. Restlessness is an agitation or excitement, which drives the mind from thought to thought with speed and frenzy. And worry is a preoccupation over a past mistake or something bad that happened, and then the anxiety about a possible undesired consequence in the future. Um, and worry is 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 a downward spiral that some people can never get out of. The third and fourth, to me, the dullness and drowsiness and restlessness restlessness and worry seem like epidemics in our current culture. You know, are always on, 24-7, everything is breaking news, everything is so important for us to be aware of that it's delivered instantly to our phones. So man, our minds are either put to sleep or constantly agitated. You know, if you've ever tried to meditate, you are intimately familiar with both the states of mind heaviness and mind frenzy you know to me meditation is 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 like um uh, cycling through those things pretty consistently either within one meditation session or from day to day you know some days your mind is like nuts right it's it's just it's frenzy franticness is is how you describe it and then that can sometimes be transferred or transposed into your to your body you know you're like you feel like one twitching mass of nutsiness I remember Meg Salter in my interview with her talking about you know, her, her, she had the creepy crawlies on her skin for a while when she was meditating. So I've been through that frenzy and I've also been through that, you know, mind put to sleep or heaviness, you know. Sometimes you're, you're sitting in your meditation posture and next thing you know, your head's flopped down onto your chest or you, or you just don't even remember what you were meditating on, you know, so... Meditation is a really good sort of uh, way to practice how your mind is right now. So you know this. But you know, you can check it for yourself outside of meditation in your everyday life and see if you're also going through those states of uh, agitation and frenziness or dullness and heaviness as you're doing whatever it is you're doing. You know, you can be bored while you're working and agitated while you're relaxing. I see it all the time. I see it in myself and I see it in other people. That board while you're working sometimes express, expresses itself as, you know, going to check out Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your cup of tea is, Pinterest, um, texting, whatever the thing is. On While you're relaxing, you can be agitated. You know, and it, the the relaxing. You know, some people say oh, I'm going home to chill and play a play a video game, or I'm going home to chill and I'm going to uh, binge watch this series. You know, that it, it's it's a good way to relax, I suppose, if you're relaxed. But I, I what I see sometimes is a state of agitation. It's not really relaxing. It's avoidance of doing what you were doing before, but getting yourself all agitated and distracted. You know, something I've always tried to remember when I catch my mind thinking it's bored or feeling frenzied to do something other than what I'm doing, which is usually to pick up my phone or switch to the browser tab with the Twitter window open, and it's this. This is what I think. What did I do back before the Internet and smartphones? Yes, I was an adult then, and I remember sitting and working without the constant urge to do something else. I just did things. Now, I'm not saying I didn't look out the window once in a while or pace around the office or open up a book and read something else, but it wasn't this constant sort of tug to see what's happening somewhere else or to see what somebody's doing. It just wasn't there. Or I think about people before TV and news delivered hourly or daily. This is even pre-pre-before the Internet, before we could just switch on cable news and, you know, get the latest rundown on who's uh, who's the latest bad guy in Washington, right? They just did their days those people they just did what they did that's it they did what is what is in front of them you know this is really a habit culture isn't forced on us right it's just there but it's our habit on whether we want to participate in it or not it is not a need to know we don't need to know what's going on every minute but it's a habit to do it Do we really need to know what is going on everywhere in the world right this minute or even today? Can we go a day without knowing? If you've gone away with your family for a vacation or a camping trip or whatever and decided I'm not taking my phone, you know, the world didn't stop. (laughs) It just didn't stop. So how does this knowing what's going on every minute really help you? or help your family or help your friends i get off on a tangent there right so let's go to the fifth hindrance or doubt you know when doubt is taught as the fifth hindrance it's not the kind of doubt like that's required to be an intelligent person required to have a critical view or wise view this is the that kind of doubt you know the buddha encourages it's the, but it's the kind of doubt, that insidious doubt, that manifests as a chronic indecisiveness or a lack of resolution or a fear to make a move. It's a persistent inability to commit oneself. And you know, I think this hindrance too, back on my tangent, has been strengthened by our culture of constant exposure to successful business people Actors, celebrities, artists, writers, etc. You know, we doubt ourselves because our world, our culture, through all its presentation in every sort of media channel, is holding up all these people as shining examples of perfect, which means we're not perfect, right? We're not even close. So why try? But see, all these people, they become caricatures of themselves. We see only their richness, their success, their beauty, their athletic prowess. We don't see who they really are or their worries or their doubts. That's not presented to us. We're not privy to that. Or we see all the ugliness and the meanness in our world, forced in our face 24-7, especially in recent years. you know, In the last two years, I, I think, or more... You know, during this previous presidential campaign, we're just we just constantly bombarded with meanness and divisiveness. So it's like our minds do have to go almost into a state of turn off or frenzy. And generally we say, okay, what's the use? Why should I even try to be a better person? Why should I even try to help? Look how the world is. You know, I won't go down either of these paths in this episode. I don't have time for that, but maybe we can pursue it at another time. That path of our cultural mean-spiritedness or the epidemic of suicide. But it seems to me, anyway, that the constant media bombardment on our minds and our heart minds of this caricature-like goodness of people and the caricature-like badness of people in the world is the primary cause of both of these epidemics of other hate, mean-spiritedness, divisiveness, and even possibly suicide. Beyond the obstacles to concentration, traditional teachings outline three major types of destructive ways of thinking. They are thinking covetously, thinking with malice, And thinking with antagonism. Okay, so thinking covetously. Thinking covetously entails thinking with jealousy about what others have achieved or the pleasures and material things they enjoy. It's like thinking, how can I get this for myself? You know, wow, look at that house they have. Look at that car. Wow. Look at this. Look at that job. Look at whatever. And this type of thinking comes from attachment. We don't like that somebody else has these things that we don't have, whether it be success, a new car, a great job, it could be anything. And if we get into this state of mind, it is obviously disturbing, and it can cause what I refer to as that stickiness of the mind. If we allow our mind to tell ourselves covetous stories, we tend to repeat them over and over again. You know, perfectionism actually can, I talked about that a little bit before, but perfectionism can actually also fall under this heading of covetousness. Think about it. We covet being perfect, right? Perfection, I know this because it's one of the afflictions I have suffered with. And I still suffer with it, although not as much as I used to. I think it is covetous because I'm coveting a state of perfection that I want, but I don't have. Even though there's no such thing as perfect, we, we tend to see how we can outdo ourselves or outdo someone or some other measure of what perfect is to us that we hold as an objective. It's almost like a jealousy of oneself by being attached to an image of ourselves that isn't real and not therefore attainable. I know, I know, I can almost hear the voices arguing that we, of course, should always try to be perfect ourselves. But no, that's not right effort. We, of course, should try to be aware of where we can do better and where we have slipped into bad habits. But establishing a goal of perfection is not the way to do it. That's out of balance. That's not balanced, joyous effort. The second type of thinking we need to avoid is thinking with malice. Thinking with malice is thinking about how to harm someone. Now, I know most of the time you can't identify this. We're not going around thinking about how I can hurt somebody or how I can kill somebody. But more, but for our purposes, our everyday Buddhist purposes, this harm is typically verbal, right? Like if this person says or does something I don't like... I will get even by saying something that offends them or calls them out. We think about what we'll do or say the next time we see that person, or we regret that we didn't say something back to them when they said something bad to us. But it it gets to be sticky, right? It sticks into our minds and we can't get it out of our heads. So much so that again, that person becomes a caricature of themselves. That person becomes the other, quote-unquote, and we are mesh ourselves so deeply into their otherness, their wrongness, that we aren't able to pause to see them just as they are, just like us. Another person who is seeking the same happiness that we are, but going about it in an awkward way sometimes, just like us, we do it too. The next kind of thinking is thinking distortedly with antagonism. Actually, all this is distorted thinking, but this particular part is called distorted antagonistic thinking. It's where like um, it's where your perspective is so right for you, right in your mind, that you think every other person's way of thinking or doing something is wrong. Like if someone is trying to improve themselves or help others improve, right? based on the way they think they should do it we think it's incorrect because it's not based on the way we think things should be done so we sort of classify them as stupid or we say what they're doing is useless it's ridiculous to try to help anyone or something like that being antagonistic it's 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 such an example of your own thinking being distorted. It's not an example of anything anyone else does. It all starts inside of you. Think about that. Antagonism starts inside of you. You can never say that someone made you do it, and you never can say that it's justified. Because it isn't. You made it up. I hear this sort of criticism of criticism of others a lot. It's not criticism of like bad motives like, someone committing a crime or something, but it's criticism of any motives or any perspectives or any interests other than what you might have. You know, I hear this like some people don't like sports and think that other people who do or watch football or soccer or hockey or even my loved baseball on television or go to see a team play are completely stupid and what they're doing is a complete waste of time. Thinking that someone else's activities or perspectives is stupid or a waste of time is antagonistic. And nobody made you do it, right? Or someone else tries to help a beggar or a, a homeless person on the street by giving them money. And you think, oh, you're really stupid for doing that. They're just going to go out and buy a bottle. So if we constantly think about how stupid other people are, right? Or how whatever they're doing is irrational we will never be able to concentrate on what we are doing, on what we are doing, which is the only way we can help ourselves, anyone else, or the world. So this is right effort. Right effort is directing our energy away from harmful, destructive trains of thoughts and towards the development of beneficial ways of thinking. But we just have to try. It's not hard either. Well, that's not too hard. But we don't want to try too hard, right? We don't want to make it like, uh, oh, make it like, uh, I have to do this. You know, I have to do this immediately. It's the only way I'm going to be enlightened. It's, 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 It's just, I'm going to try to be better. I'm not going to try too hard, but I'm not going to be too laid back about it either. I'm going to be just right about it, like Goldilocks. But the key here is just to try. Just first try to notice, to find out what is happening. Like I said just a little bit ago, notice when you typically do unskillful things. Notice when you tend to do them. Notice thinking about what triggers you to do them. Then, Try to short-circuit or lessen the intensity of those triggers so that you don't do them or don't do them as much. But it doesn't mean judging yourself. Don't be the judgmental god of you. We need to apply skillful means. Be like a gentle, kind parent with a small child. Don't grasp at the perfect or the failures. Just try. Then try again. And try again with that gentle parent inside of you encouraging you. And pretty soon you'll build one good habit and maybe you'll get rid of one triggered behavior and then the trick is to maintain the behavior, which is the second part of this whole right effort thing. This is such a good everyday practice. It isn't some cave-dwelling monk or three-month retreat practice. This is about doing something right now then again later today, then again tomorrow. It is every day. It's a little habit, after a little habit, after another little habit. This is really what life is, isn't it? Ugh, that sounds kind of like Peggy Lee And Is That All There Is, Doesn't It? But really, no, life is like that, isn't it? This everyday Buddhism stuff is about doing the little things every day. It's not a holy attitude. It's an attitude of relaxing into your life, little by little, with a feeling of everything is all right, right now. That's what really is holy. Your life is holy. This life, this world, and your part in it. And so is your husbands, your wives, your mothers, and the guy next door, and your annoying co-worker. And since it's all holy ground here, right, we've established it, it's all holy ground, we should try to make it better for ourselves and the guy next door in any small way we can. Like the way we drive, or the way we wait in line, or the way we walk around the building at work, or the way we eat. Doesn't all of this earn our respect, our awareness, our attention, our caring, our kindness? Isn't this what is holy? Isn't this what is sacred? So back to that little habit after little habit after another little habit stuff. You know, there are a lot of things in each of our lives that could benefit from a little more awareness, a little more attention, and a little more caring, isn't there? You know, take some time to think about this today and tomorrow. Maybe list two or three things that you do that you could try harder not to do or and then two or th- three things that you could try to incorporate in your life to make yourself and those around you happier. As I said before, it's about paying attention. It's about noticing. This is, in essence, right effort. This is the hard part. Adjusting your habits after noticing them is nearly as tough. You know, there's a Zen story about a student asking his master about the essence of the teachings. And the the teacher, the master, answered with one word, attention. So the student asked again in a different way, requesting, okay, not just the essence, but the whole of the teachings and how the student should practice them. To this, the master replied, attention, attention. So then the student dried one more time in desperation, asking if there wasn't another teaching the master could offer, and the master replied, yes, attention, attention, attention. So tell you what, I'm going to put myself on the spot here, in front of God, Buddha, all the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, my family, my friends and my spouse and partner, you know, they're the hardest, I'm first going to list two things I'm going to try to slowly eliminate, followed by two things I'm going to try to do more of. So, okay, here you go. This is a challenge, you know, if you haven't figured it out, if I do this, you got to do it too. So I'm going to try to eliminate one, impatience with my family, which is spouse and doggies, when I'm under pressure I'm under the pressure of time constraints or frustrations of feeling inadequate and unprepared. Now, you'll notice here that I've already taken the first big step by knowing what my triggers are. Time constraints and frustrating feelings. Those are the things that cause impatience in me. So, that intention is first to be aware of the feelings, right? Right? then you can adjust the habit. But most of the time we're not aware of the feelings and the feelings kick off or trigger our unwholesome behavior. The second thing I'm going to try to eliminate is making a quick judgment comment. I know we all do it. It's human nature to make a quick judgment about someone. But if we don't comment on it, don't elaborate on it like don't comment on it in our own mind or to others then that judgment can disappear so i'm going to try to get eliminate that and i'm going to try to incorporate two things number 1 when i feel driven or feel the tug of perfectionism i'm going to try purposely get up get away from the thing that's making me feel like that walk around the yard or do a 10 minute meditation Pretty soon, I won't be thinking about being perfect about that thing. Or, what usually happens is in the walking away from it, I know exactly what to do and now I'm not freaked out about it anymore. Number two, I will try to always be conscious of listening more than speaking. And try to never interrupt. Never is a bad word, it's perfectionist. Okay, I'll try not to interrupt. So ask yourself, where do you make maybe too much effort or not enough? Where are you lazy or running on habit? Where are you too externally focused or too internally focused? You know, it's really about looking at yourself, about looking at the people in the world outside of your own head and noticing, really notice Pause those head stories and notice what's going on around you. Notice what you are doing. Notice what are your habits. And then notice what triggers those habits. You know, our habits have a pretty powerful hold on us. We sleepwalk through our days with our habits in the lead. That's how it looks to me. But once we try changing up one bad habit or adding one good one, and it works... It's empowering, and I think that is so because it plays against, rather than with, our overachievement, perfectionism, Protestant work ethic way of being in the world. You know, it's much more beneficial as a productive practice, as a spiritual practice, because this is much more about not clinging to some idea of perfection, or enlightenment, or Buddhahood, or nirvana, but much more about letting go of little habits. And that letting go is a surrender of your false nature of self. As in, this is the way I do things, or this is the way I sh- th- way things should be done. Those are states of achievement, right? They're states of going after something, grasping at something. But we're taught not talking about grasping, we're talking about opening it up the hand and letting it go. It's about being in whatever now is. Being in it in a balanced way. Because this type of effort, this practice of attention, as the Zen master says, is less about labor or effort, but more about your attention to what is happening now, in your life, in yourself, in your family, in your friends, and your coworkers. Now is the key. What's happening now? What's you can't worry if you're thinking about what's happening now, right? You can't be distracted when you think about what's happening now. So when you really start to see how things are, you tend to respond and live appropriately and in balance. Now you might think right effort means practicing hard, but like I said earlier earlier. It's not a driven practice. It's much more about the middle way between extremes. You know, the Buddha, when he first started practicing, he made a mistake of that too. He went out and practiced with the aesthetics because that was all that was available to him at the time. That's what he saw. That was his culture. And he practiced by not eating, right? That was what the the aesthetics that he was hanging around with did to the point that he ruined himself nearly until someone offered him some milk. Um, but his, he practiced so hard that his back showed through his front. There was nothing in the middle. So don't force yourself to endure anything about meditation practices or fitness practices or nutrition practices or study practices to the point of exhaustion or frustration or damage to your mind or body. If things become a chore, think again. Start again. You know, Titnat Han says the fourfold right diligence is nourished by joy and interest. If your practice does not bring you joy, you are not practicing correctly. The Buddha taught that practice should be like a well tuned string instrument. You know, if the strings are too loose, they won't play anything. There'll be no sound. And if they're too tight, they break. Practice should be like that. That perfect balance. It should be nourishing, not draining. You know, in the way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva, which, by the way, is a how-to interpretation of the way to practice the Buddha's teachings and be a Bodhisattva, Shantideva put these practices into verse. He structured his chapter focus on the bones of the Eightfold Path. So his seventh chapter is called Diligence. It's about right effort. In it, he writes about this balance of effort and how it should be more about the joyfulness of the task. For example, I'll give you um, three verses that sort of give you the sense of the balance Shantideva points out. Verse 2. Diligence means joy in virtuous ways. Its contraries have been defined as laziness, an inclination for unwholesomeness, defeatism, and self-contempt. And in chapter 67, or verse 67 of his chapter 7, he said, If impaired by weakness or fatigue, I'll lay the work aside, the better to resume. And I will leave the task when it's complete, all avid for the work that's next to come. See, that's not blind adherence to some forceful practice. It's an understanding and attention to what's going around him, on around him and in him, a weakness or a fatigue. Then let's not, don't do the task. And in the last verse of chapter 7, verse 76, he says, just as flaxen threads waft to and fro impelled by every breath of wind so all i do will be achieved controlled by movements of a joyful heart see everything will be okay everything will be okay as long as i keep a joyful heart and keep attention to what's going on around me and as another way to motivate this joyful effort in you? This is what the Dhammapada says. One person on the battlefield conquers an army of a thousand persons. Another conquers himself, and that is greater. Conquer yourself, not others. Discipline yourself, and thereupon learn freedom. I'll end this podcast with a suggestion for an easy practice. Uh, or a mind guideline you can take up with joyous effort. It is a practice offered by the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, offered by our sensei, Reverend Koyo Kabose. Using this practice to observe and guide your thoughts and behavior, you will be practicing right effort in a balanced way. You can find it on the central website of Bright Dawn, which I will post in my show notes. And then you would click on the tab, Spiritual Resources, where you'll find this practice. It's called the Five Daily Guidelines. And there's many more practices and resources that might be helpful for you on that Spiritual Resources page of brightdawn.org. So here are the five daily life guidelines. Number one. Consume mindfully. Eat sensibly and don't be wasteful. Pause before buying. See if breathing might be enough. Pay attention to the effects of media that you consume. Number two, share loving kindness. Consider other people's views deeply. Work for peace at every level. Spread joy, not negativity. Number three, Practice gratitude. Respect the people encountered. They are our teachers. Be equally grateful for opportunities and challenges. Notice where help is needed and be quick to act. And number four, discover wisdom. Find connections between teachings and daily life. Don't get attached to conclusions. Mute that judgmental tongue. And the fifth daily guideline is accept constant change. Be open to whatever arises in every moment. Cultivate beginner's mind. Just keep going. Keep going. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to everyone who donated this week or commented on my podcast. Um, I'll always try to reach out a pri- with a private email of thanks, but be patient because the numbers of donations and, and um, comments are growing, and it might take me a little time to get in touch with everybody. But this doesn't mean I don't appreciate you. I do appreciate each and every one of you. You are my everyday heroes, my everyday Buddhism heroes. Sounds like a t-shirt in the making, doesn't it? Well, anyway... That's it for today. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting the work through ratings, reviews, or a donation on my website, everyday-buddhism.com. Until next time, keep making your everydays better.